James chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. As far the reading of God's holy word, let's ask his blessing in the word of prayer. O oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would pour out your spirit upon our hearts and minds to not only hear this word, but to understand what you are teaching the church of Jesus Christ and how we are to apply this passage of scripture to our lives. But more than that, Lord, we pray that you would show us Jesus the Jesus of Scripture, the Christ of Scripture, that we would see him for who he really is and how we who have been called out of this world, out of darkness and into light, now are called to walk in Christ and for your glory. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of Christ, as we saw last week, Jesus or James rather teaches us and reminds us of the brevity of life, and consequently we must not arrogantly make future plans and disregard the Lord's will and providence. And then he goes on to warn the rich. The rich here most likely, probably, refer to unbelievers and possibly are different than the rich referred to in the first chapter. In fact, it is probably true that these rich that James is rebuking are indeed unbelievers, perhaps infiltrating the church or outside of the church, harassing Christians, persecuting Christians, and James has a message or a word for them from the Lord. In this life, the arrogant rich boast of their wealth and possession and their pride and greed corrupt their hearts, and they become Fattened for the day of slaughter, which is a way of saying the day of judgment, the day when Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And here we have Old Testament imagery. 
prophetic Old Testament imagery of the, the grapes of wrath, the wrath of God, like a wine press upon unrighteousness and evil. And these rich, unbelieving folks have fattened their hearts for the day of judgment. The righteous person, however, does not resist the rich, as we see in our text in, in verse 6. You have condemned the rich, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person, but he does not resist you. He does not resist you because he serves his master. He serves Jesus to whom he must give an account, to whom we must all give an account in the last day. It may seem like an awkward transition from verse 6 to verse 7 when he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, but it isn't. After rebuking the rich, he now turns to the congregation. He turns to Christians. In light of what they're doing to you, how should you respond as a Christian in this evil generation? How do you respond as a Christian when you are persecuted, when you are suffering for the sake of righteousness, for truth, for the gospel? At verses 7 to 12, James exhorts Christians to have a proper attitude toward suffering, a proper attitude of the heart. How should my heart and mind respond to suffering in my life? And interestingly, what does he teach us throughout? He teaches us of the Lord's return, the Lord's coming. He says, until the Lord comes, be patient. Until the Lord comes, for it's coming, strengthen your heart. Until the Lord comes, do not groan or grumble against one another. Until he comes, do not swear or make an oath. Until he comes, remain steadfast. Remain steadfast until the Lord comes. Let's look first until the Lord comes. Be patient when you suffer. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. You also be patient. Be patient is a good translation. I like the word long-suffering because this is the word that's being used here. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Long-suffering, I've told you this before, I'll remind you, it means to suffer long without condemning, without being wrathful, without vengeance. So let's say somebody sins against you. You want to vindicate yourself. You want to do something to the other person to show them that they are in the wrong in a negative way. Perhaps speaking evil or slandering the person. Long-suffering suffers the sin committed against you and me. It suffers it long and does not respond in kind. It's stepping back and saying, God is the one 
who is judge. He will have the last word. He has the first and the last word. James says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Have such an attitude towards the existence of evil and injustice in the world and in your life because the king and judge is coming. Have this attitude of long-suffering love because King Jesus is coming and all the suffering and adversities will come to an end eventually. Did you hear what I said? Let me ask you a question. How often in the time of suffering or adversity do you focus on the second coming of Christ? I'll be the first to say, I don't. This passage has actually taught me quite a bit of how to deal with suffering or persecution or adversity in my life. Because when you're in the time of suffering, you're only thinking about what? The present. We're only thinking about the present. How to find vindication now. Rather than stepping back, knowing what Scripture says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. It's not up to you, Christian. It's not up to you. Because Jesus is coming. And what you're experiencing now, Christian, is temporary. Let that sink in. It's temporary. You see the connection. You see the connection from this passage to last week's passage on we are but a mist? Because we see themes come out from this passage that are connected to the previous context. The Lord is coming. The word here is parousia. Parousia. Or presence, the Lord's presence, which is translated oftentimes coming, the Lord's coming. In ancient times, the parousia was when a king would enter a village or a town or a city and the people would go out to welcome the king as he comes into the city. Think of this imagery because it's very important. Think of the imagery when Paul says that the Lord will descend, he will come, the parousia will come, the dead in Christ will be raised, will meet the Lord in the air, and then what happens? He will judge with his people. He will come back down, and new heavens and earth, new earth will be established. And so what he's saying here is that be patient, be long-suffering, because the Lord is coming, the parousia will coming, be coming, and you will be with the Lord, and you will be with the Lord forever. And he will judge he will make his glorious appearance at the consummation of all things. This was a bold truth. This was a comforting truth for the early church. They affirmed this biblical truth that King Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead as they were under Nero's rule, as they were under the rule and suppression and tyranny of the Roman Empire. The early Christians knew suffering and persecution 
far greater than we could ever know it. Well, we don't know the Lord's will on that. Maybe we'll see it coming. They longed. Some of the greatest words in the Bible are the last words of Revelation. Maranatha. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In light of the pressure of persecution and suffering. Suffer long under the deep distress and sufferings in the flesh because King Jesus is coming and he will bring great joy and reward when he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy. Enter into the joy of your master. And he says, look at the farmer. Learn from the farmer. Learn from him. Again, James uses another natural phenomenon of the world to simply make an illustration of patiently waiting. Patiently waiting. And you farmers know this quite well. You know it far better than I do. After he plants the field, he waits patiently for the fruits of the earth to come forth. He waits as he works with his hands and he waits in terms of time, for the earth, earth to bear fruit. And so the farmer has to remain steadfast until the harvest, until the fruit comes. He waits. He waits for the rains in the fall and the autumn. He waits for the harvest to come. And even here, James, we have to understand, and I've been saying this quite often, that James' epistle is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And here he's drawing from Deuteronomy 11. Using that imagery from Deuteronomy 11. Waiting patiently. Remain steadfast until the Lord comes. Suffer long, Christian. Suffer long and you will be blessed by your Father in heaven who gives every good and perfect gift. Second, strengthen your heart. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is near. As the psalm says, he will not delay. He didn't delay in the first coming of Christ, and he will not delay in the second coming of Christ. Strengthen your hearts or establish your hearts. Both are good, faithful translations. I like strengthen. Strengthen your heart because the Lord is at hand. He is near. He is nearer today than he was yesterday. Paul speaks of this. And so how do, how do you and I strengthen our hearts until the Lord comes, knowing that the Lord is at hand, He is near? Well, we take great comfort and consolation in the truth that He is indeed coming again. And we wait. There's that hope, that expectant hope that the present evil age will come to an end and my struggles and pains and sorrows will cease with it. 
And so I strengthened my heart with that truth. I also strengthened my heart with the truth that as a father comforts a, a, a child who's alone and the father comes to the child and the child's heart is strengthened at the presence of the father, so too my heart takes comfort. It's strengthened by the fact that the Lord is near me now and will come again. That Jesus will come again. That, it, that sense of anticipation is that source of strength. The truth of that sense of anticipation is a source of strength for our hearts. And so the biblical teaching of Christ's second coming, it's a future event that has positive and present implications for your heart. And so in that sense, suffer long or be patient when you suffer and encourage your hearts are two sides of the same coin. You suffer long being encouraged in your hearts until the Lord comes. The truth of His imminent coming, His second coming, builds up and encourages our Hearts encourages our faith, strengthens our faith. I would encourage all of us in your sufferings, in your trials, in your adversities to remember the Lord's coming. It's also imperative that we strengthen our hearts with God's word, God's truth. Because this is very serious for James, it's very serious for the Christian. The word of God strengthens the heart. Strengthens the heart. God, by his spirit, uses his word as the means by which he builds up our faith so that our hearts have tall, thick walls that are impenetrable against the evil one, impenetrable against those who persecute or seek to cause harm against us spiritually. There is therefore no time to have weak and feeble hearts, friends. There's no time for it. It's sad. It grieves our hearts to see Christians sucked away into this abyss of progressive ideology, into this abyss of false teaching, into this abyss of demonic teaching and worldviews. Christians being snuffed out. Strengthen your heart. Any of you lack strength in heart? Ask God, who gives generously to all who pray. You see, there's a connection here by what James says earlier in his chapter. Any of you lack wisdom? Ask God who gives generously. Any of you lack, lack um, direction in life? Ask God who gives gener generously. Any of you lack strength of heart? Ask God who gives generously. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, he says this, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts or that he may strengthen your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Establish your hearts. Yes, we are called to be active, to establish our hearts. But we are also called to pray, Lord, establish my heart. Don't ask me to sort out or reconcile that. But we are called to be active in our faith, in our discipline of the Christian faith. Coming up on the new year, as a congregation, January 1st, just told the elders about this. We're going to do just that as a congregation in terms of getting built up by the Word of God. And so beginning in the new year, we're going to, as a congregation, if you so choose to join us on this journey together through the Bible, we're going to read through the Bible in two years, beginning on January 1st. We need to be a people who are firm and fixed in the Bible. We need to know our Bibles. We need to cherish our Bibles. We need to love our Bibles because they are a gift from God. It's His Holy Word. And it is encouraging to do it together, to read the same Scripture together, to ask questions with one another. To encourage one, hey, did you read that? What did you think of that? I read this chapter last week. Did you read it too? What did you think of it? How did it build you up in faith? How did it encourage your heart? How did it strengthen your hearts? This is how Christians ought to live with one another and fellowship with one another. So yes, we are called to encourage our hearts Yes, we are called to pray that God would strengthen our hearts. But we also need one another. God blesses us with the fellowship of the saints, the communion of the saints. Iron sharpening iron. So one man sharpens another. Be patient when you suffer. Strengthen your hearts. Thirdly, patiently endure without groaning. Look with me at verses 9 to 11. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The previous two commands were positive. These two, last two, are going to be negative. Do not grumble or groan. Do not groan against one another, referring to fellow Christians. The word groan or grumble means to have intense anguish, Outward anguish, like a pressure coming out from you. And this is often used as a metaphor for a woman giving labor. A woman who groans in labor when the baby's coming forth from the womb, out of her body, that pain, that anguish. Do not groan with anguish against your neighbor, against your fellow brother or sister in Christ. 
When there's spiritual or physical pressure of suffering or persecution, there's a tendency to grumble among one another, to take it out on your family member. I think you may know what I'm talking about there. When you face the pressures and realities of life, who usually gets the brunt of it? Family? Those closest to you? Closest to me? In this case, the Christian community would suffer greatly when another member groans or grumbles against another member of the community. Instead of groaning, love and serve one another in the Lord. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Do not judge your brother and sister. And here it's important. Do not condemn your brother. We're not talking about calling out sin. Because that needs to be done. There needs to be correction. Calling out a sin in our lives. We're talking about don't condemn a person. That's God. He is judge. Jesus is judge. He does that. But again, he teaches the church to patiently endure without groaning. And he gives now biblical examples of why we should patiently endure. At verse 10, he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, who have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and who have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. These are biblical, historical examples of patient endurance in the midst of great adversity. And notice, they spoke in the name of the Lord. They spoke doing what? The will of God. Again, the connection. They were willing to be persecuted and suffer for the sake of doing what is right and good. Doing the will of God. Not being persecuted for doing evil, but for doing good. Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul tells Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be what? Persecuted. So patiently endure without groaning against one another because we know that persecution will come, adversity will come, and we need to patiently endure like the prophets. So consider the prophets. Consider those in Hebrews chapter 11, that great faith chapter. Those saints of the Old Testament who gave their lives who served the Lord's will and purposes at the cost of perhaps losing their lives or being shamed by the world. And interestingly, they did not see the promise. They were waiting for the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were waiting for the Messiah and Savior to come and save His people from their sin. James' audience, however, is on the other hand, on the other hand, on the other end of Christ's first coming, 
And so we wait in faith, by faith, in the second coming of Christ. And we wait patiently, though we suffer in this world. And we do so without groaning or grumbling against one another. Look at the prophets. Look at Job. Look at Job. James draws our attention to Job's sufferings, which the Lord permitted according to his providence. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Literally there, it's the Lord is full of compassion or, or very compassionate. Did Job complain at times? Yes. Did he question the injustice? Yes. Did his faith get squashed or ruined through it? Did he lose his faith? No. He was preserved. He remained steadfast under the pressures and adversity that he faced. He remained steadfast under the Lord's purposes that were fulfilled in him. If you're taking notes, Job chapter 42, verse 1 to 6 says this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and make it known to me and you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And consequently, God restored Job. Job remained steadfast and God restored him and blessed him abundantly. Oh, what awaits the people of God when they remain steadfast until the Lord's coming. Lastly, patiently endure without swearing an oath. Some interpreters do not believe that this is included in verses 7 to 11. That is kind of a, a separate verse unto itself, a, a separate um, text, and shouldn't be included in this portion of like a preaching text. But I think it is, and that is because of the, what he says there, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, referring to the condemnation that will come at the coming of Jesus Christ. Do not swear an oath before God or in God's name, lest you fall under condemnation at the Lord's coming. Again, following the teaching of Jesus Christ. To not swear doesn't mean to use foul language or vulgar language. Here, rather, refers to swearing an oath or making a promise using God's name. Listen to what one commentator says. He says, do not swear an oath is invoking God's name to guarantee the reliability of what a person says. Invoking God's name to guarantee the reliability of what a person says. So to swear by God's name that you did this or that, but you didn't, is blasphemy. It is to take the Lord's name in vain. It is to swear an oath. 
but swearing an oath isn't totally forgiven. In fact, God swears an oath by himself in the Abrahamic covenant. I swear by myself that you will be my people and I will be your God. In human dealings, it is used with extreme caution. For example, when a witness goes to the witness stand, he raises his right hand, puts his hand on the Bible and says, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the, help, but the truth, so help me what? So help me God. And so they're invoking God's name, saying by God's name, I will tell the truth. God says, do not swear an oath. As a Christian, now it can be, it's not forbidden in the sense that it can be used in the court of law. It's used in the Bible. But in your Christian daily life, we ought not or shouldn't have to swear an oath. We should be people of integrity, people of truth. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. Say it as it is without invoking God's name. Be people of truth. I'll say more on this next week. But James here, to bring it to an end, I want to say that James here sets forth for us an attitude of the Christian until the Lord comes, until His coming, suffer long, until His coming, strengthen your hearts, until He comes, do not groan against one another, until he comes, do not make oaths. Do not swear by the Lord's name. And now I want to conclude with Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Please turn with me in your Bible here. In fact, if you have your own Bible and you like to write in your own Bible, put a big old Psalm 37 next to this passage of Scripture. I don't have time to read the whole Psalm, but I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. And listen and hear for yourselves the parallels between what's said in the psalm and what is taught by James. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, and forsake wrath. Friends, suffer long. Suffer long. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Christian, remain steadfast until the coming of the Lord. Suffer long when you suffer, without wrath 
or anger or vengeance. Remain steadfast until the Lord comes by encouraging your heart, strengthening your hearts. Patiently endure without groaning against your brother and sister. And patiently endure without swearing an oath. Be a people of integrity. A people of truth. And when we sin, when we fall short, we go before God through Christ, pleading his forgiving love and mercy, and he washes away our sins. And we get back up, and we fight the good fight of faith again. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you that it pierces our hearts, bone and marrow. It pierces our soul and spirit. It pierces us to the very core so that we see ourselves for who we really are. And we see even more the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And who will take us to that place of peace and rest. That place of eternal Sabbath. We thank you, O Lord, that on this day of rest, this Lord's day, we get just a glimpse of Sabbath rest. We get just a glimpse of it, but we will see it fully and truly and gloriously in the last day. O Lord God, we thank you that we look forward in faith and in hope and in love to the coming of our blessed Savior. And so, Father, help us in the present to look to the future, to look to the Christ who shall come again. In his name we pray.